If ever there was a composer who you could describe as a one-hit wonder in classical music, then Karl Orff is it. He may have written music for all sorts of different lineups, including solo piano, string quartet, symphony orchestra and stage, as well as plenty of educational material to help children learn music, his so-called Schulwerk. We just heard an example of that at the top of this programme. But it's only really Carmina Burana that Karl Orff is famous for, the dazzling cantata for voices and orchestra based on medieval German poetry that gets performed almost every day of the year across the world somewhere. It's a work that Karl Orff wrote in 1937, when Germany was in the grip of the National Socialists, and it's a work that was extremely popular with the Nazis. In fact, it's been described by Michael H. Cater as the single universally important work produced during the entire span of the Third Reich. So the next few minutes here on Lyric is our chance to look at that work in context and to examine the life and the legacy of Karl Orff himself. He was born in 1895, the year Richard Strauss wrote his magnificent tone poem Till Eulenspiegel in Munich home of a great opera house and a superb symphony orchestra that Felix Weingartner took over the year Karl Orff came into the world. The music came from the mother's side of the family. She was a concert pianist, while Orff's father was a military man. Karl grew up playing piano, writing songs and music for puppet plays and going to performances out and about in Munich. Wagner's The Flying Dutchman was the first opera Orff ever heard, which is a pretty good way to start. His decision to leave school early to study at the Munich Academy of Music didn't go down well with his father, but he did it anyway. There, he studied Schoenberg and fell in love with Debussy. And you can hear influences of both of those great composers of the time in Orff's first opera that he wrote at the age of just 17. Gizai, the sacrificial victim, is based on a story from 18th century Japan. A calligraphy teacher has been charged with the task of killing one of his pupils whose father has been deposed. But there are shenanigans at court and another boy gets the chop instead. topped off his time at the Academy of Music with a year studying piano. And then he began his professional life by making himself useful as a musician in the theatre, first as repetiteur or rehearsal pianist, and then as music director of the Munich Chamber Theatre. He was called up for military service in 1917, and a bad injury when a trench caved in led to a long period of convalescence. His daughter believes that that difficult experience only made him more radical and more rebellious. The following decade was an extraordinary time for music and the arts. Orff immersed himself in the poetry of Bertolt Brecht and Franz Werfel and developed the system of musical education I mentioned earlier. 
Amongst living composers, Igor Stravinsky was a major influence on Karl Orff, especially the coolly dispassionate scores like Les Nus. And amongst the dead ones, Karl Orff set about reviving forgotten music from centuries ago. Now that kind of thing is big business these days, but it actually earned Karl Orff hardly any money back then. We think of Monteverdi's Orfeo of 1607 as an early Baroque masterpiece. But in Munich a century ago, audiences just weren't ready for it, as Orff discovered when he dusted off the score, worked out what instruments he needed to play it, recrafted the old Italian text into German, and brought this magnificent work to life again. This continuing interest in early music brought Orff into contact with the Munich Bach Society, which he conducted from 1930 to 1933. And his staged performing version of Bach's St. Luke Passion dates from around that time. No matter that this particular Bach piece didn't turn out to be genuine. It and the other early music revivals all helped to shape the approach of Orff's own work, bringing together words, music and movement, into a kind of Gesamtkunstwerk that you could describe as total theatre, all of which is being driven along by especially rhythmic music that makes plenty of use of percussion instruments. That is a hallmark of Carmina Burana, a work setting a range of Bavarian texts from the 13th century. The poems may have been discovered in a monastery, but they're not all as holy as that might lead you to expect. Here's one of the rare lyrical moments, which comes from towards the end of Carmina Burana. This is a beautiful meditation on love. So how was Karl Orff's music received in Frankfurt when it was first performed? And during a time when composers had no choice but to cooperate with the Nazis, what exactly was Orff's relationship with the Third Reich? Well, on the face of it, Carmina Burana ticked all the boxes of the time. It was based on texts sourced in Germany after all, and the music was tuneful and accessible. Although not everyone went along with that, some listeners were uneasy about the jazz atmosphere of the score. And Carmina Burana had to wait three years before its second staging in Leipzig in 1940. 
Most importantly, perhaps, the music of Carmina Burana went down exceptionally well with Karl Orff himself. Everything he'd been working towards for years, he felt, had finally come together. So much so that he wanted his back catalogue to be thrown in the bin. You can destroy everything I have written up to now which you have unfortunately published, he wrote. As for Orff and National Socialism, well, he never joined the Nazi party. He was a member of the state Reichsmusikkammer, but then every musician had to join if they wanted to work in Germany at the time. He did engage with Nazi policies on music, though. He wrote music for the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin and composed incidental music for A Midsummer Night's Dream to replace Mendelssohn's classic and beautiful score, which had been banned. Germany's leading composers, including Richard Strauss, were approached to do that job. They all refused, but Orff accepted. A little payback, perhaps, to his friends high up in the Nazi party? Men like the propaganda minister Josef Goebbels, who approvingly said that Orff's Carmina Burana was the standard by which all German music should be judged. At the end of the war... Orff was arrested and interrogated by the Allies. Fortunately for him, his interviewer was a US intelligence officer who'd been a music student and who knew exactly who Orff was. He was given the rating of Grey C acceptable, which meant that Orff was one of those Germans who were compromised by their actions during the Nazi period but not subscribers to Nazi doctrine. This allowed Orff to get back to music teaching at the Conservatoire in Munich and composing stage works for the theatre in Stuttgart, the Salzburg Festival and for La Scala Milan, where his Trionfo di Aphrodite got its premiere on Valentine's Day 1953, with Herbert von Karajan conducting. It's a follow-up work to Carmina Burana, blending all of the arts together in a way that musicologist Hans Meyer summed up well, when he was chosen to give a centenary speech about Karl Orff in 1995. Orff's music, Meyer said, offers less for the ear than traditional opera music. In exchange, it involves all the senses. It is not just sound, but also dance, not just tone, but also playing, not only singing, but also scenes and theatre. It is music in the sense of an artistic muse uniting and fusing all the arts, as originally conceived by the ancient Greeks. In 1982, Karl Orff died at the age of 86. From his home, he could see the Benedictine Priory of Andechs, and he had long decided that he wanted to be buried there one day. 
On his gravestone stood the inscription Sumus Finis, the ultimate end, a phrase taken from A Play on the End of Time, his final magnum opus, and another large-scale work for choir and orchestra. But what was never resolved at the time of his death was Orff's real relationship with the Third Reich. Was he a willing and active participant or an innocent bystander? That debate is still raging. When it comes to his educational work, though, we are on much safer ground. Karl Orff's system of Schulwerk introduces the youngest children to the whole business of making music by making it feel like playing, something that children are very good at. As a result, the Orff method is widely used in schools right across the world to this day, from Argentina and Australia to Ukraine and the USA. In assessing Orff's lasting achievement, his conduct in the 1930s does throw up some tricky questions. But when it comes to thinking about what he did for music education, well, surely we can all get behind that. (laughs) 